0: And welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for August 2017. I am writer hyphen. Rest in peace, Jerry Lewis. Why do the great ones always die so young? Lee Zachariah. And this month is pretty exciting because we are welcoming the new co-host of Hell is for Hyphenets Rochelle Semenovich. Rochelle, welcome.
1: Thank you, Lee. Yes, I'm Rochelle Semenovich, writer s- hyphen film critic, hyphen imposter syndrome sufferer, and I'm just incredibly delighted to be part of hell for Hyphenets. i've been an admirer of the show for seven years now i was a guest i think a while back and um, one of our
0: first yes long-time listeners will will remember i'm sure
1: i talked about sophia coppola well before her last couple of films so someone needs to probably update that at some point um yeah i'm really really happy to be here
0: i'm so excited uh you agree to, to take on this uh, mammoth task. I did, uh, I did try to warn you about how much how imposing it is it takes over your life so I hope you, you don't feel like I've misled you and that you know that it will your life will basically just be hyphenates with your previous life sort of dotted in whenever you find a, a, a gap
1: Well, I hope that I've been completely honest with you about how little time I actually have to watch every single film we ever speak about. Um, But I'll do my best, and I'm really looking forward to catching up on a lot of classics that I've missed and also having a really good reason to, um, to catch everything every single thing that ever comes
0: out at the cinema from now on. Well, this is going to be... Yeah, that's the point of the show. It's the complete canon of every work (laughs) that was ever released. But we always start with the new releases, as I'm sure you remember Mm -hmm. from seven years ago. And, yeah, I actually just literally drove here from the cinema where I'd seen Logan Lucky. A a friend of mine uh, posed a a very strange hypothetical recently to to a group of us and said, if all of your favourite directors released a new film on the same day, like living or dead whose film would you see first and I just couldn't answer it like I was thinking oh, Robert Altman or Kurosawa or Hitchcock and I couldn't answer it because I'm like I'm I'm very rarely in a rush to see a film and like my favorite working director is Steven Soderbergh this film's been out a week and I just caught it this morning so you know I mean I I, I guess the lesson here is take it easy no I don't know what the lesson is have you seen this
1: I have seen this film. I did not have high hopes for it because I heard it was described as a hillbilly heist movie.
0: Uh, I had high hopes for it because it was described as a hillbilly heist movie.
1: But then I learnt that Steven Soderbergh was the director and Mm. my hopes escalated somewhat. And I watched it and I was just delighted. It was so much fun. Um, It was perky, it was spiky, it was smart, it was zesty. It was light, but it wasn't condescending. I really, really enjoyed it. And um, that was despite the terrible, terrible snack food that was uh, served at the screening that I attended, which was in keeping with the white trash theme of the film, I suppose. We had little, um, little sausages and white bread and... Cold chips. <laughs> White
0: bread. <laughs> See, I would have thought it would be gummy bears in a bag with some... That <laughs> would, would have be been better. Glycerin or something. Um, yeah, no, you are right uh, when you said it wasn't condescending. Because mm. the, the thing that um that struck me was how, I don't know, unpretentious he is. Like, he's always been that... You know, there are directors where you feel like when they're... They're out of their their comfort zone, and when they're in a world that they don't understand, they sort of fall back on tropes. And like particularly like working class films, like they mm. turn the working class into noble heroes because they're, they're on overcompensating and they feel guilty. And Soderbergh doesn't do that. You know, he's he's just as comfortable making, I guess, Ocean's Eleven as he is Bubble and Logan Lucky is kind of the the Venn diagram of those two films. You know, you know, Bubble was the one set in the trailer park and the yeah, the it was very bleak, but um. But yeah, it, it, it's very, it is very funny. It's, like, it wasn't as clear-cut a heist film as I was expecting. Like, there are a few like shaggy dog moments. Like, I don't quite understand about the cake and the bank vault, and I don't know why Seth MacFarlane and Sebastian Stan's characters really needed to be there. I was a bit lost at points, but I really like the ending, like, mm. as I thought it was starting to go off the rails, it brought it all back together. It you know, had some surprises in store in the last 10 minutes, and I was really, yeah, happy with that.
1: Yeah, there were definitely some plot elements that I struggled to follow, the cockroaches, the cake. Yeah, I think there were a bunch of us after the screening going, oh, what actually happened with that bit? But it didn't really matter because it felt very tightly plotted and everything was, you know, it it wasn't a serious film and yet the pleasure was in the way that this um, heist was pulled off by these supposedly quite dim-witted characters. It just was such a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. And was Adam Driver doing Tim Blake Nelson, or was that just me? Do you remember Tim Blake Nelson in, in "Oh Brother Were Out There? He,
1: oh, right, okay.
0: He kind of... Oh, no, I'm not even going to try and do an impression. <laughs> it's not going to come off well. But, yeah, it's, he sounded exactly like him, and I was wondering if it was a it was a tribute accent, if that's, if that's Perhaps. a
1: Perhaps. There were a lot of very dodgy accents <laughs> going on here, but I think that was part of the fun. Daniel mm. Craig's accent... Was you know just so so hammy?
0: Isn't, isn't he from South Carolina? Oh, isn't he? I don't, I don't know. I, I thought he was just putting on the James Bond thing.
1: <laughs> He's British.
0: Yeah, right. That makes sense now. <laughs> I'm just look. I'm just happy to have have Soderbergh back where he belongs, in you know making films. You know, I'd, I'd made my peace with um, behind the candelabra being his last film, mm, and like mm. I, I had made my peace with that. So this is this is a nice surprise. I was. Yeah, you know, he
1: um he had. Retired or announced some kind of retirement, I believe um and gone to work in television for a while. is mm. that right? and then mm. he's obviously come back and instead of choosing something really serious and deep and meaningful to um work with, he's chosen this and I you know applaud him for that. Mm. Um, you know this does feel like a film that's about the current American political situation well, that's going on in the background, but it's so light handed you know mm. we have the the Channing Tatum working class character who is fired from his job because well i assume because of health insurance prob you know worries about they use his, the phrase pre-existing injury. condition yeah. yeah and um and these these are poor people these are people who've been fucked over by the system um the adam driver character is a is a returned soldier who has lost half of his arm um and yet these things are just sort of slotted in there there's no real sense of economic necessity that's making this heist necessary yeah. in the same way that you maybe think of something very different like um david Mackenzie's hell or high water where the, ca- the working class characters really really need this money i wasn't really sure why they needed this money to be honest you know, even the subplot with the ex-wife and child custody issue. Um, she's played by Katie Holmes. Katie Holmes, Holmes yeah. Um, she's not a villain. It's not a terrible situation. It's just they're like, doing
0: quite well, actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I thought when they opened the film with him talking to his daughter, I thought they're going to set up. Oh, I really need the money, or my daughter's going to get taken away, and they sort of start to to do mm. that. But then, yeah, everyone's just kind of getting along, and it doesn't really really. Matter. I did actually think. Um, Kylie Keogh was playing his girlfriend, and it was two- thirds of the way through before I realized she was playing his sister uh, Oh, Riley. And that was Riley like, Keough Riley Keogh? Yeah. Um, and then I thought, oh, hang on, have I actually got that wrong, or is this is he really leaning into the hillbilly thing and
1: uh, <laughs> 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 Yeah, I wasn't sure who she was, to be honest, was she yeah. his sister-in-law? I she always so. seemed to be hanging out at the house of his ex-wife. What was that about? Mm. Yeah, Melly. Melly was her name. And she was she was a great
0: character. she was. Well, it's definitely, um, I think the theme of the reviews this month is directors we've talked about on the show before doing throwbacks to earlier films. So if this is kind of, you know, the Ocean's Eleven uh, throwback, I think uh, Luc Besson's Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. I want to say it's a throwback to the Fifth Element, but I think the Fifth Element was a throw forward because he was he grew up on the Valerian comics apparently and really wanted to make one. And I guess he didn't have the rights or he just didn't have the rights yet or whatever and so he made the fifth element and now is finally making his you know french star wars myth uh and yeah it's it's you can definitely see the aesthetic similarities between the two worlds between fifth element and and valerian but 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 the fifth element worked
1: Uh (laughs) oh okay okay now that's interesting because Mm. i went back to watch the fifth element um after seeing valerian Mm. and I'd remembered it as this kind of elevated pop culture classic that just, you know, held together so well and was just amazing and wonderful. And it it is all that, but it's baggy in places. It's stupid, it's silly, it's kooky. You know, love is the answer to everything. It's got that cornball, Besson Mm. touch. And I do wonder if maybe in memory we um, put the fifth element on a pedestal it perhaps did not deserve.
0: Maybe yeah, I I have wondered that over the years. That every time I rewatch it, it sucks me right back in. Mm-hmm. When I think about it, I want to be all like, "Yeah, that's kind of ridiculous." It's kind of like the, the you know, the sugar high version of Blade Runner. But I do I am a sucker for it. You know, <laughs> there is a big nostalgia factor there there for me. But it's uh, look, I mean, I don't I don't think Valerian in itself is bad, like or irredeemable. I think it looks stunning, and there's like one cool sequence in the middle with this sort of multidimensional thing where his hand's in one dimension and he's in the other. And I think that is a a genius idea and it's brilliantly realised and it's a proper thrilling action scene I haven't seen done before. So I give it total credit for that. But it's just... I don't know it it feels more Jupiter ascending than than Fifth Element it's like the 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 leads have no charisma no chemistry they feel totally miscast even though I like the actors themselves the dialogue just you know clangs to the ground it 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 didn't it didn't suck me in it didn't have Mm, that mm. sort of there's a weirdness to Fifth Element that sucks me in okay um and this was just yeah I don't know it wasn't there for me
1: well, yeah, the dialogue was pretty hammy and um, basic, but I don't think his dialogue's ever been... Um,
0: yeah, true. Exactly <laughs>
1: sparkling. Um I thought Dane DeHaan was completely charmless. Mm. Um, he's supposed to be this lady killer, and um, he, he wasn't. I couldn't understand why the Cara Delevingne uh, character was supposed to be in love with him, but I thought she was fabulous. I thought she really carried off that role of the time-travelling warrior who's able to save him and hold her own and um, and look fabulous while doing it.
0: Wait, is she a time traveller?
1: Well, they are spatio-temporal agents. Um, I mean, you know, that's what they both are. Sure. Yeah, they tra- they travel around saving things. Mm. And in this case, I really enjoyed that subplot of, of the idealistic alien um, planet that's been... Destroyed by mm. the evil humans. Um, yeah. I really love these these pearly, peace loving people. That um, they're that utopian, humanistic element that that Besson had in the Fifth Element. Yeah. I suppose.
0: Yeah, that was a good. I mean, you did. He. he I think he recognised this is a world you can want to spend time in, and he really lingers on it because mm. he knows that, you know, it's going to launch a thousand cosplays and everyone's going to wish they were living on this idyllic world before everything crashes into it. But
1: I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so much sparkles and pearly powder we could put on. Well, that, I, I assume like that's that. why
0: you're dressed up like that. Now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm shimmering, listeners. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I feel like I, I really want to applaud any time like a big film is set in space because I, I, I like space films in general mm. as a general genre, and I want to see more sort of world creation and exciting out their places. but where, where does this? where do you think this fits in the in the pantheon of space movies?
1: <laughs> I really liked it. It's a space opera. It's, you know, its best scenes remind me of the alien bar scenes in Star Wars. There's a lot of sort of little cul-de-sacs and kooky subplots and characters that you sort of meet. and Like the character played by Rihanna, who's a um, shape-shifting entertainer slash sex worker with um, Ethan Hawke as her pimp.
0: I mean, oh, God, I forgot he was in that. Yeah.
1: It's, it's cool and it's crazy and it's weird and sometimes it doesn't quite work. But, yeah, I applaud um, I applaud this film for trying to do something other than presenting us with some sort of superhero and some sort of battle between one good and one evil um, character. It's a bit different. It's entertaining. I mm. liked it.
0: Well, we also just uh, had the Melbourne International Film Festival, and saw a bunch of films there, including Claire Denis' new film *Let Sunshine In* uh, with Juliette Binoche. Uh, just continuing the theme of the throwbacks, um, I did pick up um, as as you know a, pre- a pretentious, "Hey, I've seen everything this filmmaker has made before." I was like, seeing moments, oh that. That shot of the train tracks that's right out of 35 shots of rum and oh the nightclub scene like in beau trevay uh so yeah Show i was off. that guy and no i wasn't saying any of this out of course <laughs> i was mostly just sitting there being emotionally destroyed by uh this story of uh a middle-aged woman trying to find a meaningful relationship and encountering just awful men and then when she doesn't just sabotaging herself i've i found that I, it was. It's a very funny film, but it's it's quite bleak. Mm. Uh, and, and it's been so long since I've watched Denise's films that I forgot how uh, how dark she can get, which is kind of her thing, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you hear Claire Denis, you don't really think romantic comedy. And no. um, this isn't really a romantic comedy, but there is a lot of fun, and it did make me laugh, especially in its final scenes, which we probably shouldn't spoil, but they do involve Gerard Depardieu playing a an obese... Fortune teller who's trying to uh, convince Isabel, played by Juliette Binoche, that um, he may be part of her future, and I just I love the sensitivity and subtlety and sort of wry humour that's in that scene and the whole film is um, is funny but it's not really laugh out loud and you're right it's kind of a tragedy.
0: Mm. yeah i think i think that's it i think it's it's also tragic and and hopeless but it's funny like it's really funny for a film like that to have the audience in hysterics over the end credits is that's no mean feat and it really it feels like she's trolling the audience a little bit Mm. even though it's a really sincere moment and Mm. it's like the point of the film and it's like all the themes of the film coming together it's still a bit of a troll and i kind of loved her for that (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think this is her funniest film Mm. uh, so far and probably her talkiest film. There's a lot of dialogue and it's quite a stylistically simple film in the way it's shot and edited. So it's really giving Juliette Binoche centre screen and she's just there. And you say she encounters terrible men, but I think she's a pretty terrible woman in a lot of ways. Mm. I mean, it's, it's hard to have sympathy for her sometimes because she's just so... Desperate for love and so insecure and so unsure about what she wants and you know she's wandering around in this tiny little mini skirt and these thigh-high boots and she's she's pursuing men who are obviously bad for her and then she's pushing away men who are good for her and she's yeah I, I think a lot of a lot of people who are dating in their 50s will probably identify with a lot of the conflicting emotions and the essential sort of I don't know, the nature of love and the way it can completely unhinge you. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's an interesting film and I wasn't quite sure what to, what it was until I got to the end of it and then I, I it sort of all made sense.
0: Right. Yeah, it really does come together in the ending and sort of brings all those sort of... It wasn't exactly a shaggy dog film, but it had a lot of different threads going on and, you know, those last few minutes really lock it in as something... With a, with a focus, I think, with a focus that mm. it didn't seem to have earlier on.
1: Yeah. So,
0: yeah, lots of credit there.
1: I don't think it's her strongest film by any measure. Um, well, in, in some senses, it doesn't even feel like a Claire Denis film. But mm. then you've got things like, you know, she's using her regular director of photography, Agnes Goddard, and she's using a score by the Tindersticks, who are, you know, they're her regular musical collaborators. Um, and she has that wonderful dance scene. I think Claire Denis does lovely, mm. moving, meditative dance scenes where Isabel meets this working-class man in a bar and they dance to um, Etta James singing at last. And it's it's just beautiful. It's, and then you think, oh, yeah, that's right, it's Claire Denis. <laughs>
0: That That's a really good sequence because you've got sort of the guys that she's with sort of watching wistfully from the sides and we're sort of invited to be like those guys and that guy looks like such a, not a sleaze, but he's like, he, he, there's he's something, not right for her. No, no. And we're all kind of squirming watching that. But that's such a like cliched end of romantic film. Ah, oh, they've, they come together and it's just like the complete wrong situation for that. that yeah. So it's so good and uh the other uh french director although she's not actually french she just she's belgian belgian but she she's lived in france a lot she's very french agnes Varda, uh the great agnes Varda, has made another film another documentary and uh again with the throwbacks as, as with all of Varda's films her past plays such a big part of this film there are clips from her earlier films there's a lot of uh talk about her past and and so on, and uh, but that's not. It's not just a reflective film. It's uh, the film is faces, places, or which is a brilliant translation of the pun of the original French, which is uh, visages, villages. Mm-hmm. She loves
1: her puns.
0: She does, and she's very good at them. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, it's uh, she teams up with mural artist JR for this sort of semi-improvised documentary where they explore small towns across France and the people who live in them and they take photos and they plaster the photos across buildings, you know, the, these massive things and they gather stories from the people they meet and um, and it's a really touching idea and, it, and it, they've got such a great banter, they're such an unlikely pair and they bicker a lot but they've got, there's such an affection between the two mm. that um, it's, it's really, yeah, it's a buddy comedy I think.
1: It is and they are, they're, they're the odd couple, she's this 88 year old, um well, she's kind of elven, isn't she? She's mm-hmm. sprightly. She's a little old lady. She does have funky, dip-dyed hair. And, um, but he's this 33-year-old, you know, Banksy-like artist who won't take off his dark glasses. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yet they have this friendship. And they won't tell us how they met or how they became friends. But instead we get, in a very Vada um, sequence, we get this kind of little montage of how they might have met. Didn't you know in Such a, a, in a nightclub or yeah whatever yeah. yeah it's it's playful and that's one of the things I just love about her work is is her playfulness mm. she takes play very seriously
0: yeah and like even in moment like again talking about like finales you know they there is a finale where they decide to try and meet Jean Luc Godard who she hasn't mm-hmm. seen in years and years and used to collaborate with and like without spoiling what happens it's kind of a stunning moment to end the film on and it's. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to say too much because that, you know, I guess it is a spoiler, but it's, it, it's very deft because I guess a lot like um, uh, the Denis, it's, it, it sort of pretends to be ramshackle and just mm. like like a magpie picking up anything shiny that mm. looks interesting. And uh, But it, it very much comes together at the end. You know, it's, it's very much on point. It's a film about how we should remember things the way we remember them. We shouldn't necessarily try to resurrect them. Because sometimes they're better in our memories. They're better living in the past. And when we try to drag them into the present, maybe maybe they don't hold up.
1: Okay, I didn't actually think about the film in those terms. But now now that I'm thinking about it... So, she's a very nostalgic filmmaker, though, isn't she? Mm. Like, in something like The Beaches of Agnes, she does bring the past into the future a lot. And her memories are such a part of what she does. Mm. So, yeah... I guess there's a sadness about that. And there's always that sense that the past is the past and yet it lives on within us. But she's, she's kind of unsentimental while also being nostalgic for the past, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good distinction, I think, because it's particularly with what happens at the end and you think it's such a, a dour note to end on and she finds the happiness in there. She finds, she sort of discards the old. You know, as much as she's always looking back, the ending is so much about dismissing what's past and what's old and embracing the new thing, this you Mm. know, this thirty year old artist that she's on a road trip with.
1: Yeah, I think it always says something really good about an artist if they can still befriend young people when they're old, you know, Mm. something about being open to new new ideas and new people. But the other thing that I really loved about this film is its celebration of the ordinary working class rural Mm. um french people that um they encounter on the road and they they take their photographs um so there's people like coal miners and dock workers and farmers and they take their photographs and blow them up into these really huge big um, murals that they paste on any large surface they can find like a a cliff or a wall and um it's like a celebration of Mm. of people who are never going to be celebrities but not to make them famous, but just to acknowledge yeah. their existence.
0: And they really in, engage with it too. Like on the outside, you could kind of see it as uh, oh, a conceptual artists come into town and, you know, put pictures on the side of buildings and then leave, you know, mm. take that working class. <laughs> you know, it could go so hideously wrong. But I think. You know, Vada in particular is such a genuine person and such a, uh, like, she's obviously doing it because it tickles her. Mm. And I think that's what the, these people all sort of tap into is it's not some off-putting distant art thing. Mm. It's something that everyone can relate to. And, you know, the art is there to be enjoyed and to celebrate the people, you know, it's about the people they encounter. And they don't make it about themselves. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really sweet movie and it's... Yeah. Uh, it yeah.
1: reminds me of The Gleaners and I. Yeah. Um which was also about, you know, the French people who collect the leftovers after the um, you know, after after the harvesters have been through. So people who who collect odds and ends and thrift thrift shop ethic, I suppose. Yeah, which was actually the first documentary, the first film of of hers that I came across. Right. Um, and I I feel like her documentaries in later life have just the more I find out about her, the more I want to go back to her early work, which, you know, a lot of which I've not caught yet. Yeah. But I hope to.
0: Okay, this month we are going to be talking about the films of Australian legend George Miller. But it's a slightly unusual format uh, because we're going to be joined later in the segment by this month's guest, director Edgar Wright. Uh, we'll chat to him about his feelings about Miller and Miller's films. But before we get to him, Uh, For those of you who are unfamiliar with George Miller, basically Mad Max. That's sort of the start of it, but not really the end of it, because he's done way more than that. He was one of four children of Greek immigrants. Uh, He went to medical school, became a doctor, but was always interested in directing films. He made shorts with his brother Chris when he was a student, and uh, he went to a film workshop in Melbourne, and there he met producer Byron Kennedy, and the two of them formed Kennedy Miller Productions. Uh, when Kennedy tragically died in a helicopter crash in 1983, uh, Miller actually came close to quitting filmmaking altogether, but he continued and he kept Kennedy's name in their production company. So Kennedy Miller is still, I think it's actually called something, it's, they've added another Kennedy name. Kennedy
1: Miller Mitchell?
0: Yeah, that's the mm-hmm. one. They made uh, the seminal Mad Max, and uh, that's kind of where we find ourselves starting. Are you a Mad Max fan, Rochelle? You, you strike me as the... As the ultimate Mad Max. Do I really? Uh, yeah. Well, you've seen
1: me drive, obviously.
0: I have. Yes. And you've also changed out of your Valerian cosplay into a Mad Max outfit. <laughs> <laughs> into a Tina Turner.
1: <laughs> no, I'll be Warrior Woman from uh, Mad Max 2, I think. Excellent. Um, look, I've got to be really honest with you. I went back and watched Mad Max, um, the first Mad Max, I think for the first time all the way through this week in preparation. Wow. And... I had read so much about it, heard so much about it. I'd seen the other two films um, over the years. But, yeah, the first film is great. I loved it. It's just so basic. So, yeah, I, these kind of films aren't my favourite kind of films. Yeah. Um, I think George Miller is not known for his really um, nuanced and multi-layered characters and his love of witty wordplay and dialogue and... Um, These films don't have that. They're really basic, but they're kinetic, they're exciting, they engage the senses. And, you know, I think Adrian Martin has described George Miller as Australia's most purely cinematic director. George Miller understands cinema, and um, he's very, very good at manipulating the elements that he has at hand to make us feel something, to make us, you know, feel that kind of... i remember fury road thinking that it wasn't really a very interesting story on so many levels but it made me feel just so buzzed afterwards yeah. um so yeah i think maybe that's that's something that um the first mad max had that and um yeah i am a fan now yeah. thanks to this show
0: excellent well that's the point <laughs> of the show so that's uh that's good to hear the one thing that really struck me is what, uh, something I had not considered watching his films in the past. Because in preparing for this show, of course, we read bios, we read, you know, how did he grow up, what were in his interests. And reading about him being a child of immigrants made me look at his films quite differently. It's interesting that in the early years, you've got a director who is the child of immigrants making films like Mad Max and Mad Max 2, which are films about, we need to get out of this hellscape, we need to find a better place. (laughs) Things are bad, let's get out of here. And what I find really interesting about that is that in his later films, he really turns that on its head, because Happy Feet and Fury Road are not about, let's get out of here because the world's going to hell. It's about, let's stay or let's go back and fix the world that we're in. Let's, mm. Because there's nowhere to go to. It's all wasteland. The penguins aren't going to be able to, you know, survive mm. in Sydney. Mm. Um, you know, the the wastelands uh, were once green but are now destroyed. So the solution is not to run away. It's to come back to where we started and figure out how to fix the world that we're born into. And I don't know how conscious that is. I don't mm. know if he would accept that reading of it. But I I think I think there is a definite pivot about halfway through. Is filmmaking career where suddenly it's all about staying
1: that's a really interesting reading i hadn't thought of that i think when he made the first mad max film he had not yet encountered the work of joseph campbell the famous mythologist um, Mm. who talks about the universal hero story and so i think in his career since mad max which was you know very dystopian and very much about not there being no hope and there being no no hero i mean even mad max 2 road warrior is very you know it ends on a very kind of triumphant note for the narrator i suppose spoiler alert but max is left as just the man wandering yeah but i think as miller has progressed he's become more more disposed to a happy ending more disposed to a hero who triumphs rather than a hero is who's an anti-hero, like the classic Western hero that Max kind of is.
0: Yeah, I, look, I think, I think the, the Joseph Campbell stuff is really interesting because he does like the hero myth. I mean, Mad Max is such a... Uh, it, I think it ties into how he he, make, he creates franchises. Mm. He loves world-building, but is not fussed with continuity, which is mm. something we're just, we're just not used to these days. You know, continuity is king in modern franchises. But it, there's a sort of glorious rebellion to that idea where none of the Mad Max films really fit, fit together in terms of story or casting. Like Bruce Spence is someone new every time, mm-hmm. Max doesn't recognize him.
1: Max is kind of new every time yeah. as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like you still, like there are still clips from the first film in the second to sort of suggest this backstory of grief and. and and even in Fury Road. But it's sort of, it's treated like a myth where Mm. each film, it's like we're being told about Max through the eyes of someone else and Mm -hmm. they don't know the backstory. So the stories don't quite fit together. It's like, um, I mean, like in in Beyond Thunderdome, which I think is really underrated. It's obviously the lesser of the Mad Max films. Uh, I I do quite like it a lot though, but it's, you know, a big deal is made of uh, these stories being passed down orally like through storytelling you know Mm. no one writes anything down we tell the stories and it's which is very much rooted in the aboriginal tradition Mm. and i think he kind of treats the mad max films like that like someone has told a story and it doesn't fit in with these other stories Mm. but that's okay because the the broad points are what's important yeah he used to look like mel gibbs and now he looks like tom hardy doesn't really matter (laughs) you know someone's telling the story but uh but i but he actually continues that with his other films because i think You know, Happy Feet 2 and Babe Pig in the City aren't really continuations of a narrative. It's not really the further adventures of... I mean, it is, because it's the same characters. But, okay, the 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 setup has been taken care of in the first film. We've got... Everyone knows who everyone is. And now I can tell a completely different story. And I don't have to worry about continuity, because the important parts of continuity are people know who these characters are. And, like, I think he is one of the most interesting directors of sequels, because he will find a new direction and a Mm. new point. It's not just retreading the old ground.
1: Do you think his sequels work, apart from the Mad Max films? Because I would argue that Babe, Pig in the City is a terrible, terrible film and um, Happy Feet 2 doesn't quite know what to do with itself. So... Yeah, I've heard it argued that the Mad Max films work because they're not really sequels. They're all telling the same story just over and over in a different kind of...
0: Oh, you think... That, oh, OK. They are telling the same story. I guess they are a bit. A Babe. I have to confess, I had not seen either of the Babe films until recently. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, uh,
1: Were you charmed by the first Babe film? Because everybody else in the world was. It was just yeah. such a phenomenal global success. It was... It was huge, that film, and just so beautifully simple. Mm.
0: Um, I remember my family went to see when I was 14. They all went to the cinema to see Babe, and they said, do you want to come with us? And I looked at what was playing in in the next cinema. I said, no, I'll go see that instead, which at the time felt incredibly precocious because it was the American president. (laughs) It was like, why do you want to see this middle-aged romance? But now I'm an avowed Aaron Sorkin fan. I stand by that Mm -hmm. decision. Okay. My 14-year-old self. But I always felt guilty that I hadn't gone and seen Babe (laughs) given what a beloved film it is. Yeah. it's one of those things where it's very much a product of its time. Like, I, I, I was charmed by it. I loved it. Mm. I had a great time with it. But in the same way that Toy Story felt really subversive at the time in '95, mm. because no one had done anything like that, and now every film is filled with reference, you know, little lines for, for the adults and amazing visuals and clever humor. And I feel like I may have missed something because kids' films and family films have, have moved on since then in the 20 plus years since it came out. Mm. You know, cinema has evolved, so I've sort of missed a bit of the spark that might have captured people at the time. I get why Pig in the City... Because Miller didn't direct the first Babe.
1: No, Um, Chris Noonan. Chris Noonan,
0: yeah. Uh, Miller directed the second, and I can see why it was so reviled at the time. Because if you want another... If you want the aesthetics of the first film the beautiful green hills and animals talking and so you know and and very bright then you you're essentially watching a film noir you know mm, or mm. you know dark city or whatever uh and it's very dark in both visuals and theme, and I get why it was off putting at the time you know it was hard to watch without knowing that everyone hated it at the time, and it's now being reassessed as a modern classic
1: oh, really really
0: really. that that it's been reassessed or that
1: well yeah i mean i i heard that it really has its fans who are reclaiming it so perhaps i should watch it again instead of um just remembering my horror (laughs) um because even the first babe film even though you you remember the candy colored um palette and the sort of cute sweetness of it it's actually a horror story Mm. you know this pig that realizes it's been born to be eaten and yeah. that every other member of its family has been eaten i mean it's it's a terrible terrible story yeah. um but it has a kind of simplicity and a fairy tale quality to it and you're right babe too um is a, a kind of i don't know it's, it feels like a fairground nightmare in yeah. comparison.
0: Yeah, and it was hard to watch without those two competing narratives in my head. Of everyone hated it at the time, and everyone thinks it's classic now, and I'm watching. Not kind of, everyone. Well, nearly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah and, and I, I found it hard to have a, 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 an honest reaction mm. to it with that going through my head. But I can kind of see both points of view. I guess the design is amazing, and mm. I love his sort of unfettered love of silliness and of just yeah let's have animals talk and let's have Mickey Rooney dressing up and then Magda puts on Mickey Rooney's outfit and people are jumping around and nearly just knocking over champagne flutes and it's like a slapstick and I kind of love that you mm. know I, mm. I I like that he's willing to be so silly after being the post-apocalyptic road warrior guy mm. you know mm. he and that's that's something else about him is that he jumps around genres so much like for someone who has made so many franchises i guess he you know he's made he made the uh, a segment of twilight zone the movie mm-hmm. uh, which incidentally we have now covered every director who has directed twilight zone the movie that's wow yeah i don't that's uh, i'd
1: like to see that um, twilight zone movie i must see that
0: well i think his is the best segment like mm, i think I've all the segments that. work but yeah. yeah his nightmare at 20000 feet is uh, is just so propulsively thrilling and he's having so much fun in it. But, you know, he then goes and makes The Witches of Eastwick in 87 and Lorenzo's Oil in 92. Mm. You know, one is sort of a fantasy comedy and Lorenzo's Oil is, you know, a true life drama. You know, it's a really quite harrowing story about something that actually happened in real life. And, and he sort of, he seems to engage in very different genres with that same fervor, with that mm. same passion. I think, yeah, Witches of Eastwick is interesting because it really holds up. You know, it's 30 years on and it absolutely holds up. There's a lot of... Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting nervous saying this because there's probably going to be a million articles <laughs> on the web explaining why the opposite of this is true. But I find it quite a feminist film. Yeah. Which I know feminist feminism wasn't invented with the internet, but <laughs> at the same time, something, watching something from 87, which is about Jack Nicholson charming everyone and seducing everyone in a town... It's still kind of surprising that the, the point is that he's this hideous man who presents himself as this as the saviour and this, this wish fulfilment, but he's actually quite this petty, vengeful creature. And it's, uh, and it's so funny. Mm. It's so funny. But I think, you know, a, a lot was made last year of the fact that, or two years ago, of Fury Road being, oh my God, George Miller made a feminist film? Yeah. It's like, yeah, 30 years ago he, he, he did that. Like, that's it's actually quite bedded into his, his worldview, I think. I think a lot of his films are fueled by, you know, they're not didactic, but they're driven by a, a social conscience. Like, you know, there is the feminism in Eastwick and Fury Road. There's an environmental story in Happy Feet, and you can tell from the Babe films that he's a vegetarian. You know? is he? Yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. I did not know this. Well, I
0: just assumed at watching the films. Then I looked it up, and he talks about he talks about um, yeah, he's not a vegan, but he is vegetarian. So he's, I think, all of his films have that sort of that social. Underpinning
1: Okay, yeah, something else that's really interesting about George Miller is that you know he's he's one of our most successful directors, mm. definitely um, I'm speaking as an Australian here, and yet he is not comfortably situated within our canon of Australian filmmakers. I mean yes, we claim Mad Max, yes, we claim babe, yes he he produced so many of those amazing wonderful. Films like *Dead Calm*, mm-hmm. um, the miniseries that he did in the '80s, and yet he's kind of international in his sensibility, and he always has been, right from the very start. And a lot of his films take place in a nowhere, nowheresville, like yeah. even *Mad Max*. It's not really Australia, and it's you know *Babe*. It's a fairy tale kind of English countryside. Mm-hmm. It's not anything like an Australian farm, and. Um, And so we find it difficult to embrace him in a nationalistic way because his films aren't really about Australia. And as Australians, we really love filmmakers to present ourselves to ourselves and our landscape to us to to look at and interrogate. And he's kind of always had a broader, broader um, ambition than that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really good point because I think what is the film that defines Australia if you had to pick one? And I think... You de- you might not end on this, but you definitely have to make a case for one of the first two Mad Max films. I think uh, I think if you could pick one film that people know about, because I desperately don't want the answer to be Crocodile Dundee, <laughs> so I'm going with Mad Max Two, and that is you know in many ways it's the quintessential Australian film. It put us on the, the the sort of the global map in terms of the rest of the world paying attention to our cinema. But yeah, you're right. He's very international. He his films both where he makes them and what he makes them about, you know, both production and topic, are very uh, are sort of all over the globe, which um, maybe that speaks to what he's interested in, you know, no borders. Now I'm just putting words in his mouth, I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, I think universal hero rather than any any national or local idea of location or hero.
0: Mm.
1: Um, I, I was looking up Fury Road and where it was made, and, and you know, it was made in Namibia, And the big story is that it was made in Namibia because they wanted to shoot it in Australia but then the rains came and the desert turned into this, you know, floral nightmare.
0: I hate it it when that happens.
1: But I was reading an interview with George Miller way back before Fury Road was even on the agenda. Well, it was on the agenda, he was talking about it Mm. and he was talking about Namibia way back then Mm. and I was thinking, you know, we really wanted that film to be made here. We wanted to claim it, we wanted it to be here and... um, and yet maybe he never really did. I don't know. That's yeah. just me wondering.
0: Could be. I mean, you couldn't really say, no, I've decided to make it in uh, in Namibia, like this quintessentially Australian film, without there being a reason. Like, ah, oh, there's a plant over there. I <laughs> wanted, wanted there to be sand, but there's a plant. So off we go. Everyone get on the plane. Uh, yeah, that's, that's funny. Because it doesn't really, like, I don't think anyone was massively bothered that Fury Road was set... In Africa, I was kind of expecting an outcry from some quarters, but um, oh, it was filmed in Africa rather than filmed in Australia because you know we do. I guess there is a sense of ownership over it in Australia, which is fair enough over the franchise. But um, I guess once they recast Mel, we were like, yeah, it doesn't really matter at this point.
1: I suppose from a um, national film industry point of view, we would love it to be made here mm. um, to employ our people and use our locations, but. Yeah, George Miller has never been confined and um, he's worked predominantly outside the Australian film funding organisations mm. and um, he's worked with um, US studios, um, but also brought a lot of work back here too through his own um, production house. So, yeah, I just think it's interesting that he's, he's our most successful Australian filmmaker, but he's kind of a tricky one to fit.
0: He is, he is. I do like that he's had this sort of resurgence where, you know, for a few years there, he's the kid's filmmaker, you know, Pig in the City, Happy Feet, Happy Feet 2, and all sort of going, what, what, what is this new phase of your career you're doing? You know, is this, have you turned into Robert Rodriguez? What's happening? Um, but then he comes back and makes Fury Road and suddenly he is everyone's favourite again and we're like, oh my God, he still has these skills. In fact, not that he still has these skills, this is probably the most accomplished film he's made certainly mm. on a technical level maybe mm. on on every level like I, I do find it I don't like hailing films as all-time classics so soon after they come out because I think you need a decade minimum mm. to let them settle but I, I suspect it will be remembered as as such as being you know maybe even the highlight of the franchise but certainly one of one of the best films of the the 2010s because it's such a rich well-drawn world you know he really creates a society where even the even the ridiculous parts of it like a guy playing uh the guitar on the back of a mm. of a rig you kind of buy that because it's just so unapologetically silly um but it does seem to fit with the with the aesthetics of the world the action scenes are absolutely amazing and there's a, a documentary he made in 97 called uh 40, years of dreaming mm. which i think is also called 100 years of australian cinema i'm not sure but uh, he talks about how he edits his action scenes and he edits them without sound, mm. so he puts them together silently and once he knows they work silently he he knows he 's got something uh, and I think there 's something interesting is him as a silent filmmaker, you know making sure that those action films work like that they 've got a pace even without the music and the sound effects doing the heavy mm. lifting
1: yeah, and he storyboards extensively before mm. he um before he shoots and I think there was a big sort of a comic book storyboard that was given to the actors well before they were given a script for Fury Road. And so, you know, everything has to work before it happens almost. Um, and he talks about the musicality of yeah. the scenes. So, you know, even though it's silent, it's got, it's got to have that sort of rhythm, I suppose. Mm. Um, you know, and he he, he edits his film so extensively a lot of a lot of the film happens in the edit yeah for george miller yeah the action sequences i mean he he makes action sequences make sense you know how so many directors these days have action sequences where so much is going on that you lose the yeah. thread yeah but that doesn't happen with his
0: no no i mean i've watched it in the cinema and on a tv and it works equally well in both regards you know you know you're not sort of in this Paul Greengrass, I love Greengrass, but, you know, you have no idea what's going on for about 30 seconds mm. at a time. Uh, yeah, it's very clear. The choreography is very clear. He's got such a clear rhythm. Mm. And, um, you know, maybe those, you know, you, you talk about him being, a, you know, treating it like music. Maybe the fact that he keeps trying these different genres is his way of trying different songs. Like, I'm going to do my rock ballad and then I'm <laughs> going to do this, you know, this pop song and then I'm going to try I noted in uh, Lorenzo's Oil, there were a lot of single shots. Mm. A lot of one takes that are so different from the frenetic cutting of Fury Road. So it's not like he's got a style. Like my shots always look like this. It's like what are the right tools for this particular job, which is why he's, maybe why he's such an effective director. Even if you can't look at a shot and go, oh, that's a George Miller shot. You know.
1: Yeah. Um, Although I think Lorenzo's oil is is an anomaly in his filmography. It's Mm. so different from anything else that he's done um, in that it's just so focused on the actors, the performances, the scenes are are kind of longer and it's a simple human story in a way that a lot of his other films aren't. So, yeah, I I think if you saw a car chase across the desert, you could definitely identify (laughs) it as a George Miller scene.
0: Yeah, very true. Yeah, I find it interesting that you're saying he's not like the quintessentially Australian director, which I think you're right about. Um, but, it's, but he's such a big believer in the importance of Australian cinema culture. Like, that's a real passion for him. And, yeah, I would argue that when the rest of the world thinks of Australian cinema, they think of Mad Max first and foremost, which is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of his contribution. But if that's, you know, if that's your legacy, that's a hell of a legacy to redefine the cinema of a nation. And that brings us to this month's guest. Edgar Wright is the beloved director of modern cult classics, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, The World's End and Baby Driver. He was in Australia recently promoting Baby Driver and the day after the Sydney premiere, which was hosted by George Miller, I sat down with him in Melbourne to talk about his love of Miller's works. As a lifelong fan of Mad Max and of George Miller, what was it like last night you had the premiere in Sydney with Dr George Miller introducing
2: it. I mean, it was incredible because, you know, George Miller, who I could talk to for hours about his movies and his process, wanted to talk, talk to me about my movie and my process. So it was incredible. I mean, I'd love, love to know what somebody in the audience felt watching it because I just on stage was kind of very selfishly enjoying it myself. I was thinking, George Miller was asking me lots and lots of questions. It was quite a long q and a It was like forty five minutes long. I just he wanted he'd just watched the movie he'd watched it for the third time he'd seen I'd actually sent him a rough cut of the movie because I was in a position where you know I'd seen Fury Road we'd become friendly and I told him I was making a car movie and uh so'd ha- so i said i explained what it was, and he I explained that it was like a car movie that's completely driven by music. Because the lead character is soundtracking every moment. And the lead character essentially is trying to find the perfect score for the perfect score. And that's basically the premise of so every single scene is set to music. And George was like, oh, wow. And he said, oh, I would love to, you know, if you want me to have a look at the script. So he did. And he really loved the screenplay. Then I got a chance to pick his brains about technique. And he said, you need to use the edge arm. The whole of Fury Road was shot on the edge arm and I use that like, sort of uh, rig all the time. And the, uh, the edge arm is a crane on a car. It's a, a camera crane car. And it's very sort of nimble and you can basically get right in there. So all of those low shots in Fury Road and in Baby Driver are all done on the edge arm. And, um, and then when I finished shooting the movie, I showed him a cut um, because I thought if George Miller likes it, then I'm done. <laughs> and um, he, he really liked it. He, uh, I think he watched it twice. He showed it to his son. He said, okay, if I show it to my son, I said, of course. And uh, he had a couple of uh, questions about the, v- the final action set piece, which are things that we actually, you know, we, we did four days of pickups and we made some changes to that sequence just to kind of give it some clarity in places. Um, so we improved that. And then last night he was watching it for the first time, finished, so, I can't tell you just how amazing it was. Um, um, what, you know, like him watching it and then talking to him about it afterwards. So, I'd be fascinated to kind of like to hear from anybody in the audience what they thought. I think at some point it's going to go on Facebook Live, but maybe delayed because obviously it's full of spoilers. Mm. But hopefully it'll be open, available to the public at some point.
0: Did I see you say on Twitter that he not only offered you advice
2: on the film, but also offered you some medical advice? Well, I I currently have tonsillitis. And I think I've had it for, like, the last three weeks of the tour, and it's been undiagnosed, and I've been increasingly run down. And um, I finally saw a doctor in Sydney, and the doctor said, you have tonsillitis. And he prescribed me, like, sort of antibiotics and steroids and this gargle solution and ibuprofen. And uh, George heard, he goes, oh, you've got tonsillitis. I said, yeah. He goes, so what did the doctor say? And I said, I said, told him, so he, goes, he, he said, he, why does he want you to take steroids? <laughs> and I said, well, it's just to bring down the inflammation. He goes, you should be careful with steroids. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm getting a second opinion from George Miller.
0: <laughs> so uh, you, you're obviously a fan of Mad Max films. Are, are you also a fan of his, because he takes a lot of diversions. Are you a fan of the, the Happy Feet and Lorenzo's oils in his
2: filmography? I must admit, I Happy Feet. I am not. Uh, I have not seen the Happy Feet movies actually because obviously, you know, I don't have kids and like so I was the wrong age and stuff for that. So it's actually one that I haven't really seen. It's the only the only films of his filmography I haven't seen. What's funny about that though, I have seen Babe and Babe too though, um, which I really love. And what's funny is we were about to go on stage, and Anne Elgort, who's twenty three. You know, and is always saying, like, oh, I've got to watch more movies. And, he, you know, he's seen stuff. He loved Fury Road. So he's very excited that George was there. And then the guy from Sony was introducing George, and the guy from Sony said, We have one of the greatest Australian auteurs in film here tonight. We're very proud to welcome the creator of the Mad Max franchise and the Babe series and the Happy Feet and Ansel sends me he goes he did Happy Feet I said yeah he won an Oscar for it he goes oh my god I didn't realise he was the director of Happy Feet so that was fantastic <laughs> it's so generational yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: wh- what is it about uh, Miller's style and his directing that you you love or that appeals to you what do you, what do you identify in, in his directing
2: well I think I was talking to him about this last night is that what's interesting to me is, some, is him as somebody that's kind of self-taught action director, is he was just, with the first Mad Max, he's constantly looking for what's the shot that will make this as exciting as possible. And, you know, when you're sort of doing car stuff, you very quickly realise that the standard Dukes, and ha- Dukes of Hazard like up and past, as they call it, which means... The camera's on the street and the car goes past and the camera follows and goes around and then you you know, do it again with the following car. That is boring I and mean, you need to be moving. So it's like, you know, like so sort of ABM, always be moving. It's like the camera's either fixed to the car or it's fixed on the pursuit car or it's, um, you, the, it's on a camera car following like the car's. But you've always got to be moving, and you've always got to be finding ways to show the speed. Like he was telling me an interesting story. We were talking about the French Connection chase, and why that's one of the greatest chases of all time, is that it's sort of um, spatially very clear, but also, you have, because they go under the elevated train, it means that there are other elements in shot that are showing you the speed of what's happening. And that is, is that if you have a side shot, you've got the struts of the elevator train. And if you have a shot through the windscreen, you have the shadow of the train tracks over Gene Hackman's face. So the car is already travelling fast, but there is another element in the shot that's showing you exactly how fast it's going. And then he said this interesting thing, that when they did the Road Warrior, they're out in the outback a lot. So there's not any foreground to whiz past. You're not shooting through trees. There's not things in the background, wacky racist style, that show you exactly how fast you're going because the outback by its nature is wide and expansive. So to combat that, that's where they sort of came up with the idea of like keeping the camera really low to the ground. So that when the cars are driving, you have all the foreground shift of like the tarmac and the white lines mm-hmm. and the idea of there being sort of motion on the ground. And that's very similar to then with Fury Road is that if you look at most of the driving shots, they're lo- really low to the ground, so you've got all of the kind of sense of the sand and the dust coming through.
0: Every country, I think, approaches driving differently. Um, have you noticed anything in the cinema of Australia that's different from America or the UK about how we uh, depict cars and, and and chases?
2: I guess, I don't know. I mean, you could tell me, was, I'm an English person, you tell me what sort of... Um, like car culture means but I would assume because the country is a little more wild that like sort of like driving and road trips is a little bit more of a being a pioneer spirit to it
0: a little bit there's a, there's a bit of uh, don't hit a kangaroo not out of humane reasons but because you will die the kangaroo might survive right but they're massive things and looking at these two you know the, the Mad Max franchise versus say James Bond which is so car heavy uh, one seems to be about speed, the other seems to be about uh, uh, destruction and building up and, uh, and, like, the car that ate Paris. Yeah.
2: Well, also adapting your car as well, like, sort of, like, making your car your own, you know, that's something that's key in the cars that ate Paris and the Mad Max franchise is this idea of these, like, um, I don't know what you would, <laughs> how to describe them, but, like, there's sort of the idea of, like, the um, pin my ride, like like, th- 35 years before um, obviously the most kind of like prominent example of uh, like cars in Australian cinema, cinema is obviously the Mad Max films um, and I was always curious with that actually I had an opportunity to interview George like two years ago when Fury Road was coming out we'd already met we met because um, I my sound mixer who's done all of my movies Julian Slater was working on Fury Road and he emailed me at one point and said uh, oh I'm working with George Miller at the moment are you a fan he loves your movies and would love to meet and I was like are you kidding me and of course I'd love to meet him so we met and had dinner and that was great and, um, and then I, I, I did a Q&A for Mad Max with him I was blown away by the movie but I remember asking him I said where did this come from I mean where does the um, where does the uh, even just the imagery of the first film come from in terms of your upbringing And he said that what was fascinating to me is he said there was such a sort of huge car culture in Australia, but then when he was growing up that he'd lost a lot of friends to car accidents. And then even in the years leading up to making the first Mad Max when he was a a working doctor and surgeon, that he was, like, pulling, like, double shifts as an EMT with his then sort of producing partner. And, you know, it would be doing roadside surgery at grisly accidents and stuff so i think it's something kind of like fascinating about that in terms of like this imagery of both cars and velocity and speed but also death is something that you know sort of permeates through the whole of the mad max franchise it's fascinating to me